turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Well, welcome back. Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. Top of the hour. We're starting off a little bit differently today. Uh, I usually give a monologue. I don't need to give a monologue today because we have the state's top education official with us, and nothing is more important than the leadership on educational issues. At least that's uh, true for me, true for the man sitting across from me, and true for many in this audience. It is a privilege to welcome into the studio and welcoming your calls if you'd like. Superintendent of Public Instruction, Mr. Tom Horn. Mr. Tom Horn is a different kind of educationalist. He's a different kind of educator. He, like St. Francis, who believed with the birds and the flowers, he believes every student can learn to speak sentences with subjects and verbs and predicates. He gives up on no one, and he also understands the wars that are taking place in education. Mr. Horn, welcome back to the studio. Thank you, Seth. It's great to be with you. You and I were friends a number of years ago. When you're associated with Bill Bennett. That's right. And he That's came right. to speak at one of my That's fundraisers. Right. I don't know right. if I ever told you the story about why he agreed to come to speak at my fundraiser. I may know, but you tell it. Well, um, he saw me on a on a on one of the network programs debating a, uh, a extreme left-wing sociologist yes, who sir. was trying to dominate and elbow, elbow me out of the conversation. And I sharpened my elbows, and I gave as good as I got. And he enjoyed that. And, he, when he, and then when he addressed the... Um, the uh, fundraiser, he said that if I didn't know Tom was Jewish, I would think he was Irish. <laughs> and, and then he told the story about the Irishman who walks yeah. down the road, and on the corner there's a fight going on. He goes up to him. He says, "Is this a private fight, or can anybody join?" <laughs> well, I'm glad you've joined the fights. Right. I thought you were going to tell the story that he likes to tell about you. That uh, at the Milken uh, conf- uh, Milken Foundation, where they honor all these great teachers. Uh, they had a uh, they had a, a, a trivia contest, and you blew everyone out of the water on that. I think that was another moment. Yes, that's true. There was American history. That's contest. right, American history, and, uh, and nobody else came close. That's right. Well, I I can vouch for that. I saw you give a speech during the campaign where, with no notes, you walked the audience through the entirety of the 1619 project and what it meant, and it was one of the best presentations on it. As someone who I think knows something about it, I have ever seen. And we'll get to that in a few moments, uh, Superintendent Horn. Let me start with this question. Your official title, Superintendent of Public Instruction. There's a lot of different concepts about public instruction. Is it an office for the public? Does the public have an investment in it? Is it just public schools? Is it all students? What's your concept of public instruction? Well, um, I don't know if you've seen any of my promotional uh, uh, promotional ads regarding ESAs, mm-hmm. but the first thing I say on there is that as the superintendent of public instruction, my job is to encourage excellence in our public schools, and we have public excellent public schools. But even a good public school may not necessarily meet the needs of all the students. In fact, we have families where two of the three kids go to public school and are doing just fine, but one needs something different and, and uses the ESA to go to a private school. Um, and, so, and so what I say in the promotional ad is if your child's needs are not being met in the public school, 
you have choices. And then I talked to them about the essays. It's eminently true that there are some very good public schools, some even great ones. Yeah. Uh, choice isn't the only answer, of course, and you know this. I like to remind the audience that likes to talk about educational choice. It has to be part of the mix. But you and I both know uh, while there are some very good private schools, there are some private schools that are as bad as public schools. And there are some charters that are very good, but there are some char- – it's not only choice. There has to be not only uh, uh, the choice. There has to be a, co- a commitment to excellence. And this may, in fact, even require legislation at some at certain points. I mean, you can get a lot of crud in a lot of these private schools as much as you can get in the p- worst of the public schools too, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, excellence in the schools is, is what I'm all about. Yeah. Uh, our slogan is that we're a service organization dedicated to re- raising academic results uh, and empower parents. Mm-hmm. And so raising academic results is like 90 percent of what we do. But the press covers the more controversial things, including ESAs, so people don't realize that. But but all of my energy pretty much goes into what can we do to help the schools do better academically. Now, we have right now 68,000 students in ESAs. We have 1,100,000 in public schools. So almost everybody wants to send his or her child to the neighborhood school. If If they take the child out of school... That's a big thing to do, and they're going to choose the school they send them to very carefully. If that school does not perform, they're going to take them out of that school and put them someplace else. So the the view of the legislature was the best accountability for the for the ESAs is the parents because these are not parents who just left their kid in the neighborhood school. These are parents who took the action to take the kid out, um, and if they're not satisfied, they're going to take them out again. And so they their theory, and I'm enforcing the law that they passed is that the parents would be the best accountability. It's a strange thing when you hear union leaders and the president of the United States talk about how the parents really don't have a role during the school day. I've never heard this kind of talk and chatter. You heard it from Terry McAuliffe in the governor's race for Virginia. You've heard it from Joe Biden. When the students are in the classrooms, they're ours, not yours, meaning they're the states, not the parents. This is new. Well, it's not new to Cuba, and it's not new to China, and it's not new to defunct places like the Soviet Union. It's new here, right? It's a new concept here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, Terry McAuliffe said he didn't think the parents had a role to play of what the kids learned in school. And the parents saw to it that he had no role to play in what the kids learned. Yes, yes, of course. Um, So uh, one of my slogans, as I just mentioned, is empower parents. Uh, Nobody cares about a child as much as the parents. When the child is born, it's the most important thing in their lives. They they feed and clothe the child. They bring them up. They they teach them things. and, And they know best what that child needs. And we have to recognize that. We used to understand what made for a great school. uh, Some of us still do, I think. You do. One of the marks I always thought was how welcoming that school would be of parent involvement. Still true, right? Oh, yeah. I think that's still true. um, Now, you know, I spent 24 years on a school board, 10 years as its president of Arizona. That was your purgatory, yes. Well, (laughs) it was satisfying for me. Putting you back in the Catholic Church. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Yeah, I was – this was, uh, you know, uh, 10 years as its president, third largest district in the state. And our rule was any parent could go and watch the teachers. And no teacher ever complained because they were proud of what they were doing. They wanted the parents there. They wanted them to see them. And that's um, 
so that's I think that illustrates if if you have good teaching, nobody objects to the parents participating. That's an adjunct too to some of the problems we have, isn't it? The schools wanting to conceal things from the parents, whether it's the curriculum, whether it's the sexual uh, interests of the children, whether it's uh, the sexual behaviors of the children. That's a new thing too. There's almost a they don't want us to look too closely as as to what they're doing in their little satraps that they believe should be unaccountable to the public. Yeah? Well, one of the things I've been fighting are, are school districts that have put things out to the students saying, you know, what pronoun do you want to be and, and do you want us to keep this from your parents? That's flatly illegal. There's a statute that says that, that public officials cannot discourage kids from sharing things with their parents. And I've been using my hotline, you're familiar with the hotline, uh, to call attention to that. And when we do... The schools tend to stop doing that. I want to uh, invite the uh, – you are the superintendent of public instruction. We'll invite the public to ask you questions too. Our phone number is 602 Our guest is our state superintendent, Tom Horn. This is your second tour of duty at the superintendency. A lot has changed. Um some of it language. You were just honing in on a little bit of it in the previous conversation. We used, the debates were different. You know, you could have a roiling and rollicking debate about school choice, yes or no, and different versions of accountability and maybe even teacher quality or maybe even measurements or maybe even merit pay. Today we're debating far more foundational things that falls in the lap of education, like what constitutes a human being, what constitutes a male, what constitutes a female must be a very, very different thing. Yeah, it's a lot. I've never worked harder than I'm working now, even, even as a trial lawyer yep. you know, in trials, uh, because there's so much that has been messed up that needs to be corrected. I was superintendent from 2003 to 2011. Then I was attorney general. Then I spent eight years back in private practice, which got my bank account back up because <laughs> public service doesn't pay much. And then, uh, and then I announced I was going to run for superintendent again. So my friends came to me and said, Tom, you're crazy. You know, first of all, there's a huge drop in income. And secondly, you're, you are the attorney general. You're going backwards. And my response was, the big problems in the schools, that's what I absolutely have to work on. That's what I want to pick up with you on the other side of this break. Yes. The biggest problems in our schools are the biggest problems in our society. Tom Horn and I will be right back. You have a question for the superintendent, 602-508-0960. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn is my guest. Happy to take your calls as well. 602-508-0960. Right before the break, Mr. Superintendent, you were making the point that you were superintendent. You became attorney general. You decided to run for superintendent again after a bit of private practice, and people were saying it's a step down. And you made the trenchant point it's not. Because of what's going on in our schools, it's eminently true that what takes place in education really defines so very much in the rest of society. What's written on the chalkboards, one might say, ends up in our revised statutes or our U.S. codes. And we forget that too much. I think if I can speak for myself as a conservative, I think we conservatives have neglected the schools for far too long, woke up a bit more during covid the left understood that power. We didn't. They understood the power of schools, didn't they? And we are just kind of – they're halfway around the world and we're just tying our shoes, something like that. Yeah, I think I think you're right, um, especially not only the K-12 but also in the colleges. Absolutely. We need more conservatives to become faculty members. It's, it's so 
monochromatic now, and it's really oppressive and outrageous. Um, and in the schools, uh, interesting thing is that there are a number of conservative communities that have extremely left-wing school boards. Yeah. Uh, Paradise Valley, yeah. Scottsdale, Chandler, yeah. Mesa, Gilbert, you name it. These are very conservative communities that have very left-wing school boards. Why is that? Because the teachers' union has focused on that. They get teachers to run where they live, not where they teach. Mm-hmm. They get a lot of money from the national teachers' union, and they put a lot of money into those campaigns. And so they've taken over the school boards, and we have local control in the state. So that's a lot of power. And so I'm not up for re-election until 2026. So for 2024, my obsession is helping get conservatives elected to school boards. I'll let other people worry about the presidential election. No, I'm with you on that. I have been on this whenever I give speeches or talks and people say, what can I do? My first answer is run for school board. A lot of people picked up on that message, not because they heard it from me necessarily, but a lot of people did roll up their sleeves and start running, uh, particularly I noticed in Scottsdale and in Chandler, made some success, uh, not as much as we need to. But that's where these things like curriculum and these policies are decided, isn't it? It really is at the school board level. It's at the school board level. and. um uh, some of the places you mentioned might have two conservatives, and we that's just right. need one more. That's or right. Some we need two more. That's right. Uh, but uh, that's really what the focus has to be on. We've got to win those school board elections uh, because it's outrageous. I don't know if you saw what happened at the Washington School District. Their 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 school board is so outrageous. They canceled their association with a Christian college yes. that had been sending teachers to them. Yeah. Because they didn't approve of a— They didn't like the college's mission. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, and, and, and I said I sent, issued a press release saying they should be sued for violating the First Amendment. Yep. And they were, and they settled, and everything's okay now. Yeah. But that just— But the idea that they thought they could get away with that, And right? that they wanted to. Right, and, and, and the that woman they wanted who made to. The, the woman who made the motion— Wears cat ears. Yeah. She's a nut. Yeah, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> among other things. It really was. It showed the bias and it showed the prejudice. It showed the prejudice. You know, we've traveled a long way since you're a lawyer, uh, a good one. We've traveled a long way since we couldn't say the Regent's Prayer anymore since, what, Ingle Vittel, 1962. But the idea that you couldn't have— I was have, in high school at the time. You were in high school yeah. at the time. I. Um, but the idea that you could move from there— to what transpired earlier this year where you wouldn't allow a teacher in the classroom merely because they attended a Christian college. That bias, that prejudice, that sneer, um, that's that's kind of telling of the value. That's the big tell about what's going on in our schools yeah. these days. I, you know, and I, um, I, I spoke out strongly you as did. a Jewish person. Yes. We have an old expression, if you want to, he wants to receive uh Dignity must give dignity. Yes. Respect must give respect, yeah. and it's a cha- it's a it's a danger to all of us when that kind of prejudice goes on. A lot of dangers going on. Talk to us about your fight against the culture that wants boys on girls' athletic teams and in girls' bathrooms. Well, I I started feeling passionate about this probably. I don't know, 30 or 40 years ago, you may remember the case of Renee something who was a tennis player. Yeah, Renee Richards, was it? Yeah, maybe? Renee Does that Richards, sound right? Something uh, like that. Male yeah. tennis player yeah. decided to play, decided he would say he was a woman and right. play in the women's league. They didn't want him. 
and some stupid judge ordered them to let him compete as a male and a female tennis. Right. And uh, so I've been passionate about this issue for a long time. Yeah. And so I got sued. Uh, Arizona, the Arizona legislature passed a statute that says biological boys can't compete in girls' sports. There's a lawsuit brought to declare it at least in, in, unconstitutional in part. It's a, it's a narrow case right now, but it's a first step. And, um, and so four defendants got sued. I was one of them as the superintendent of schools. The other three all conceded, saying, yeah, we're with the plaintiff. Let the boys play. <laughs> so, so I defended it by myself. The legislature ultimately intervened. Um, and, and it's just an outrageous situation. We've read in the newspaper about girls who work really hard at their sports. They have dreams of making the varsity team or a college scholarship or maybe even the Olympics. They work so hard. And then all of a sudden they have to play against a male. They can't compete. And they're devastated. Their dreams are shattered. And, and why aren't people showing sympathy for them? Where are the feminists on this? On the wrong side. Yeah. Why is that? It's such an odd thing. I mean, we who were, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, I, I think I have a caller who wanted to weigh in with you on this. Yeah. I think I have less in Phoenix. Les, you're on with Superintendent Tom Horn. Well, thanks for, thanks for saving our state, Tom. Uh, I think you and her are the two mainstays to not making us into California. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't leave the state for anything. No, but I mean, without you being here, you know, we with with the current administration, we'd we'd be adopting California really quick. Thank yeah. God you're 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 standing in the doorway, preventing them from doing that. Yeah. Uh, the question I have for you is: is if you clarified, they keep telling us to follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. So I'm saying. Maybe we should put the regulation or maybe put it in statute saying that in order to to place a, a biological male to identify as a woman, he has to prove that he has the XX chromosomes rather than the XY chromosomes. That would be following the science, right, Tom? It's, it sure would be. And, um, you know, when this applicant for the U.S. Supreme Court couldn't define a woman, uh, you know, it meant she didn't pay attention to ninth grade biology. Yeah, um, yeah there are states who have done that, who have said and, – and, uh, there was a, a decision that went against us because it was involved intrusive testing to determine their chromosomes. So that might be going a little far, I think. Yeah. I think usually we know. You can look at the birth certificate, yeah. and, and usually you know whether somebody's a male or a female. Let me talk to you about the race issues when we come back. As I said earlier, uh, I saw you give a speech on 1619, the 1619 Project, and it was, as someone who has talked a lot about it, it was one of the most impressive uh, tours through what parents needed to be concerned about that I saw ever given. Uh, Superintendent Tom Horn and I will be right back. He's happy to take your question, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, Grand CanyonPlanning.com is his website. Superintendent Tom Horn will resume with us in a few minutes. Wanted to do our culture and economy update. GrandCanyonPlanning.com, a great way to uh, learn more about John and his team and great way to reach out to him. John, how are you today, man? Fantastic, Seth. Thank you. You betcha. All right, brother, what am I looking at? Revised payroll numbers showing a slowdown. Talk to us. Uh, yeah, we had it's an interesting report here, and we did see the markets react to this today. 
Uh, ADP reported uh, private employers added 177,000 jobs in August, which was well below what was already a revised number of 371,000. So miss uh, missed by about 200,000 jobs. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, that sounds like bad news to me, right? Mm-hmm. Adding a much lower uh, number of people to put back to work. Uh, but the markets are taking this as uh, a positive uh, you know, piece of news because – you know, this is, again, leading to the point that, hey, this could be a reason for the Fed not to raise rates, that the interest rate hikes that they've been doing over the past year uh, have been taking effect. And this is a lagging type of an effect. And uh, this is good for the economy and good for markets. Uh, so it was an interesting turnaround. As we saw the markets open a little flat today, but ultimately did close higher for the fourth day in a row. And uh, the Treasury yields, right? That's what's falling. Yep. Here. Yeah. Treasury yields also uh, falling as well. So... Uh, all of those are, you know, reasons for uh, people to move out of bonds and back into equities, which, again, is helping uh, the stock markets. So uh, a number of good pieces of information, um, you know, to look ahead that the market uh, is taking this and assessing this and, and ultimately uh, moving higher because of these these indicators. One of the things we'll watch for here, of course, is that uh, you know the administration will talk about uh, the labor market looking strong with unemployment mm-hmm. at about mm-hmm. three and a half, but we're still missing those that aren't looking for work, and we're still not at pre-pandemic levels yet, quite. Are we? No, of course we're not. And uh, you're right. This is gonna you know this is probably not something that you'll be hearing the administration talk about. Uh, that that the miss on these jobs, yeah. um, but again, you know, I look at it from an, from a perspective from the economy yes, uh, and for the markets and for our clients. And you know, something that I think Seth is important is is I always uh, talk to this about clients, and this isn't a slogan I came up with or anything, but it's it's talking about trying to time the market versus time in the market. Yeah. And I think it is a great uh, way to look at it, is that there's going to be these ebbs and flows and ups and downs of the market, uh, and people sometimes get concerned. They hear all the negative things out there, uh, and so they may you know, not act mm-hmm. uh, and, and invest as they maybe should be doing for the long term. And oftentimes people miss these opportunities. We saw the markets probably rally over the past couple of days up about 3% just in a few days. Uh, so, you know, sometimes people are looking for returns of 3 to 5% on an annual basis. And we see this tremendous jump over a short period of time. And if you're not invested for the long term, again, you may miss out on some of these opportunities that do happen from time to time. So... Uh, I think it's critical for people to, you know, be working with a good advisor to get good counsel on uh, a solid investment strategy that is good for them, that they're confident and comfortable with. Uh, and they can do that if they're working with the right advisor. And they can get in light as much as they can get in heavy, right? Yeah, exactly right. That's true. Um, John, you look at all this, and what what, what is that? What's your what's your what's your sense of what the Federal Reserve might do with with interest rates again? Do you think we're done? I mean, especially given where the mortgages are today and things like that, you think we're pretty much done with with rate hikes at this point? Or uh, well, I, I as we know, the last week or what the Fed did not raise rates. Yeah. Uh, it, it looks to me that we still have some potential, um, you know, uh, areas of concern when it comes to the economy. Uh, and the Fed is probably going to be looking at these areas pretty closely. Uh, but as we start to see numbers like this come in, this is probably uh, more 
you know, favorable for them not to raise rates. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. You know, moving forward. But there is that chance that we might get one more rate hike before the end of the year. Uh, and probably not have any, uh, you know, many many people were thinking that we were going to have some decreases in rates yeah. prior to the end of this year. Yeah. I don't foresee that, but I we are very, very close. But we still have not allocated, you know, much in the way of pushing money into bonds at this point, Seth, when we can get five-plus percent rates in yeah. these, some of these higher interest pair, uh, you know, interest-bearing money market accounts. So we're we're taking you know that that interest that we can get for safe money for this short period of time, getting ready to make some adjustments when we feel the right time comes to take advantage of of the equities uh, moving forward. Nicely done, JD. Thank you, sir. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Fender and Civic, and an investment advisor. Grant Canyon Plenty Associates LLC and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank Take you, John Dombrowski. You Much appreciated. Tom Horn and I will be right back, and we will be taking your calls as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Tom Horn, our superintendent of public instruction, is my guest in studio. Agreed to stay a little longer because we've got some calls, and I've just got a bunch more questions. I will uh, turn you over to some of these callers, uh, Superintendent Horn, if that's okay. We were talking a little bit about the transgender fight in education and really in society. Uh, and so uh, let's uh, let's start with, um, oh, yeah, John in Phoenix. He was picking up on your Renee Richards uh, reference. John, <laughs> you're on with uh, Superintendent Horn. Thanks. Yes, there was Renee Richards back in the, uh, I guess that was the early, late 60s, early 70s. And he was never much good on the men's circuit to begin with, but he decided to try that. And he never won very much. But a lot of the women dropped out of the Australian Open uh, that one year when he wanted to play. And he did play, but he didn't win. And uh, that kind of set the tone for everything. But in the big picture, the women have brought a lot of this on their own because Billie Jean King played uh, uh, Bobby uh, Riggs. Bobby Riggs. That's right. Yeah, Bobby Riggs, and uh, and Bobby lost. He could have beaten her because Bobby was actually a really good tennis player. And if you watch the match, and I know a lot about tennis, uh, he just fed her overheads and volleys like there was no tomorrow. Because if he would have beaten her, a 62-year-old guy would have beaten Billie Jean King. That would have ruined the women's tennis. And so that gave them a big boost. But then after that, uh, she also lobbied for equal pay. And this is the 50th anniversary of equal pay for uh, men and women on the circuit. If you watched the U.S. Open last night, that's exactly what they had. And they talked a lot about it. But the bottom line is still women still play two out of three sets, and men have to play three out of five. The women play about 60% as much as men, but let's move past that. Uh, well, I think I think a woman uh, player was complaining about unequal pay. Her boss said to her, you don't get paid to play tennis. You get paid to sell tickets. If you sell as many yes, tickets as the men do, then you get the equal pay. That's correct. But in, in the big picture of things, it shouldn't be that boys get to play with the girls. And I wrote an article for American Thinker about four months ago about a Vermont school, a girls' church school, that sent their basketball team to the state tournament, and there was a transgendered player on the other side, and so they forfeited and they were roundly criticized by the superintendent of that school district, and they were penalized for forfeiting the game. And I wrote that if I had been the athletic director of that Christian school for those girls, when I heard that there was a transgendered player that was going to play, I would have suited up the boys' team, and I would have had all the boys' <laughs> and just announced 
Today, these players identify as girls. Let the games begin. Now, that boys team came in second in the state. They would have easily defeated every girls team. And if they would have done that, that probably <laughs> would have ended, and ended the debate. Superintendent Horn, he makes an interesting point, though, about Billie Jean King, because the effort then was to support and protect women and women's sports, and it's so odd. That's what Title IX was about. Right. That's exactly what Title IX was about, and it's so odd. You see women athletes, whether it's the U.S. soccer team, just willing to commit Harry Carey over this whole effort, just willing to commit suicide over this. Oh, never mind. Nothing special about women's sports. I have to to confess that I bet on Billie Jean King. Oh, okay. uh, Because the odds were way skewed for Bobby Riggs, not because that was the probability of him winning, but because men were doing the betting and women weren't. Uh, and so all the men uh, were betting uh, on uh, Bobby Riggs. Uh. And I said, this is an irrational probability. And I bet my mentor, my boss, he bet on Bobby, on, uh, Bobby Riggs. I bet on Billie Jean King. The next morning, he walks into my office. He throws the money on my desk. And he says, you took advantage of me. And he stormed out. <laughs> on that issue, I mean, this is kind of an interesting thing, this whole debate about feminism, society, and education. We have Tony in Casa Grande. Tony, you're on with Superintendent Tom Horn. Hey, uh, thank you, uh, Seth, and all your guests for being providing great content to listen to rather than just a bunch of argumentative type, type of talk. Now, uh, thank you. My my point is this, is that you asked where have all the feminists gone, and I've uh, been forming beliefs on that, and my, my strong belief is that feminism wasn't birthed out of women trying to gain rights as much as it, has, as it was uh, with the advent and push of uh, the, the Marxist uh, thought processes, and those, those thought processes reject traditional family and um, and the and God strongly and and, and it hates God, and it, to me it's the only answer why women strong feminists would ignore this transgender thing uh, in the face of protecting women's rights. Thank that's, thank that's, you, Tony. Yeah, yeah, Tom. There is this weird thing, this wave of of Marxism that wedded itself to radical feminism in the early seventies, where this idea that you could overcome nature, imported from Marx, became part of the radical feminist movement in the early seventies. But now seems to be more and more, uh, shall we say, normative. Yeah, um, uh, there, some of these radical groups of, of, of regarding gender. Uh, are openly proclaiming that they're for communism. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, I I believe I'm the first person to have actually fought critical race theory. Uh, I did that in 2008 uh, when Tucson had a a program called Ethnic Studies, mm-hmm. and and part of their curriculum was critical race theory, and they defined critical race theory. This is what they taught the students that they're against. Uh, legal reasoning, neutral principles of constitutional law, and Enlightenment rationalism, of all things. Mm -hmm. Enlightenment rationalism is a product of 18th century that people should be able to reason for themselves and not rely on church doctrine and do scientific experiments. And all the founders of our country were products of the 18th century uh, Enlightenment. Um, So where the heck are these guys coming from? Mm And I felt in fighting this critical race theory, for a long time I was a voice in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But when 
uh, Fox News started referring to critical race theory as CRT, I realized that my time had come and people had caught up to me. Yeah, that's right. Uh, people were denying that it was taking place for so long, too, which is interesting. I kind of think that there's this progressive dialectic going on in our society today, Tom Horn. First, the left, if we point something out, the dialectic runs something like this. The leftists first will deny that it's happening. Step two, justify that it's happening. Step three, mandate that it does happen. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of what we've been dealing with here. Right. The joke is that uh, to Democrats, critical race theory doesn't exist and it's awesome. And it's awesome. In fact, that's right, because the NEA and the AFT were denying it and then put planks in their platform that they were going to defend teachers who taught it. Let me take a quick commercial break. We'll come back with more from Tom Horn. We let's have pick a, up on this because I have something let's, let's do that on the other side of this break. And Tom Horn's going to stay with us into the next hour, too, a little bit if people have more questions for him. I know I do. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Want to thank our sponsors, Y-Refi, uh, one of our great sponsors of this show. Uh, they've been getting a great response from this audience. Y-Refi is an investment in a secure and collateralized portfolio that's not tied to the Federal Reserve. It's not tied or correlated to the stock market. If you're concerned about the vicissitudes of the stock market, the volatility of it, or the Federal Reserve, your investment with Y-Refi has nothing to do with it. And you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Uh, you can turn your income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with absolutely no fees. There's no attack on principal if you ever need your money back. Get that freedom, and you'll get your monthly statement with no surprises. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-24. That's 888-YREFI-24. Tom Horn is our guest. He's the superintendent of instruction. You wanted to make another point, sir. About, uh, about the Marxist. critical race, uh, yes, it's and the Marxism. Marxism, right. Because um, the teachers in the Raza studies programs, mm -hmm. Raza means the race in Spanish, under the rubric of ethnic studies, mm -hmm. describe themselves as neo-Marxists. Right. So what's a neo-Marxist? Well, the Marxist, Marx taught that the only thing that mattered in history was the class struggle. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to study anything, just the class struggle. That's a massive oversimplification of history. That was his doctrine. The neo-Marxists say have the same theory, but they say it's not the class struggle; it's, it's the, race. the race struggle. Yeah, and uh, one, one might call that Nazism. Yeah, well, the I believe the Nazis replaced that class struggle of Marx with, with the race with racism. I do too. Yeah, yeah, interestingly, they were they were also somewhat Marxists. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember reading one of the top Nazis wrote that as soon as we finish killing the Jews, we have to kill the bourgeoisie. That's right. National socialism was what Nazi... That's right. Yeah, yeah. right. But so, that, anyway, your point. Yeah. Sorry. Well, um, Marxism has been decisively disproved by the greatest experiment of all time, which is the latter half of the 20th century. West Germany was capitalist. East Germany was, so was communist. South Korea was capitalist. North Korea was communist. And the reason it was a great experiment is because it was the same people, same culture, same everything except a different political economic system. And West Germany was prosperous. East Germany was poor. South Korea was uh, exceeded North Korea in per capita income by an almost unbelievable 100 to 1. So anybody who's paying attention knows that Marxism does not work. The only way to produce a surplus and have a have a 
a prosperous country is to have competition. Because right. competition makes people work hard. Uh, the Soviet Union was a, a government monopoly. As they used to say in Poland, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Yeah, that's that's right. We pretend they work. And that's kind of an interesting thing about the Marxists among us now. They don't want competition, but they don't want competition of ideas either. And uh, we're going to take a top-of-the-hour news break. Welcome more calls with Tom Horn, who's agreed to stay with us into the next hour. So Tom Horn and I will pick up on more political theory, more education theory, and more education fact. We haven't even talked about COVID yet. Tom Horn and I will be right back. <laughs> 